This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, talking with uh, Rob Coleman, who is a professor in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology and Reproductive Medicine at MD Anderson Cancer Center. The topic of the discussion today is going to be um, the role of secondary cytoreductive surgery in the setting of uh, recurrent ovarian cancer. So, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Rob, I wanted uh, to hopefully start with um, a discussion as to, can you put uh, in context the principle of secondary cytoreduction in recurrent ovarian cancer, and um, what's the history behind this principle, and why is this an important question to address in our, in our field today? Yes, thank you, Pedro. The, I think that the um, this it's not hard to understand how surgery and in the secondary setting uh, has become a topic of question. I think we've all appreciated since uh, you know the mid '70s uh, when we showed uh, that surgical side reduction was had an impact on outcomes. Um, and so it makes sense that in the recurrent setting, you know, when a patient's gone through a disease-free interval and tumor comes back, that the thought doesn't come back in our minds again about how we approach this disease. And as you know, uh, we've we have uh, been looking at this question for many years. I was actually interested to find out back in 1990, the GOG actually held a debate, a pro-con, as to whether or not we ought to be doing secondary cytoreduction. reduction. So that was 15 years or so after we'd already had been studying the role of cytoreduction in the primary setting. So now we're debating it in the secondary session. And here we are now 28, almost 30 years later, and we're still talking about this topic. So I think it was, it was really critical that, um, uh, that the the intervention was supported by lots and lots of retrospective studies, some prospective cohort-type studies that essentially showed that surgery had some role in improving uh, at least progression-free survival. So obviously we had a, a recent study, GOG-213, that has um, shown us some, some very interesting findings. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the history of how the, the trial came about and, and what was the, the, the reason for, for the study? Well, I think the primary reason for the study was that uh, up until the early uh, 2000s, uh, we still were debating the question, and there had been no prospective randomized trial to address it. And you can you can imagine how incredibly difficult, I mean, you personally know how difficult it is <laughs> to do a prospective uh, randomized surgical trial in a disease where there's a tremendous amount of bias that the, that there's that there's merit. So um, uh, there was a uh, this this trial actually developed kind of as a blending of two concepts. One was that in the late 1990s we were interested in studying the role of combination chemotherapy in the recurrent setting, uh, platinum sensitive setting, and so we had designed a few trials uh, in the GOG to try to assess the role of chemotherapy. Uh, as a combination or as a single agent uh, in, in recurrent uh, ovarian cancer. At the same time, we were interested in the same population for surgery, and so we blended the, the two objectives together into a single trial. And it had a brief start. It used to be called GOG-202, uh, and it was open for about a week uh, before uh, the NCI became very interested in adding bevacizumab to the, to the chemotherapy question. So the study uh, was uh, retooled as a in its current form, uh, to look at two uh, objectives. One was the role of bevacizumab to the chemotherapy backbone of paclitaxel and caroplatinum, and the second was to evaluate the role of surgery in the same patient population. 
So can you tell us a little bit about um, who were the uh, patients that were included or met the inclusion criteria for GOG 213? Yeah, so the, uh, the inclusion criteria for the trial was that th th we wanted these patients to be platinum sensitive and we wanted them to be potentially surgical candidates. So the first objective uh, of the trial, we allowed patients, both surgical candidates and non-surgical candidates, to go on to the study. So the first decision that had to be made was whether or not the patient was considered a surgical candidate. If they were not considered a surgical candidate, usually by, um, uh, well, I left it basically up to the investigator based on the distribution of disease and whether or not they felt they could achieve a complete gross resection. If they weren't a candidate, then they were allowed to participate in the randomization for the chemotherapy. And that was, as I mentioned, was Paclitaxel carplatinum versus Paclitaxel carplatinum bevacizumab, followed by bevacizumab maintenance until progression. This, if the patients were deemed surgical candidates, before they underwent that chemotherapy randomization, they were then randomized to surgery or not. So we took the candidates that were good, uh, felt to be good candidates for complete gross resection, and randomized them to surgery versus no surgery. And so now, what did you find? So we reported out uh, uh, a couple years ago the, the results of the chemotherapy question. We knew that we needed a larger population of surgical patients. So after we addressed the question about the bevacizumab, which did show an improvement in progression-free and overall survival, we expanded the surgical cohort to, to get to the, the, uh, the population that we needed uh, to address that question. And so we expanded to 485 patients the uh, surgical question. So 107 patients were originally randomized during the chemotherapy question, and then we added another 370 or so patients uh, to address the surgical question. And so that trial went on, and um, uh, we eventually got to a a data closure uh, a couple years ago, and we were able then to report the results. And so now, focusing just on the uh, on these surgical patients, um, what were your findings with regards to progression-free survival? Um, do we have overall survival data um, pertaining to the patients that did undergo uh, surgery? Yeah. So this was uh, quite interesting. So. Um, uh, uh, about a year or so ago, um, the uh, Data Safety Monitoring Committee, who was monitoring the results, uh, monitoring the outcomes of the trial, the safety and the results of the trial, had begun to look at the data uh, uh, about the point where we reached the 50% mark for the event totals. And that happened in about May of uh, uh, a year and, and, and change ago. And we um, uh, they were concerned, not concerned, they were, they were basically identifying that they wanted some more da patient data to evaluate whether or not the trial result would actually reach its primary endpoint, which was a superiority trial for a improvement in the overall survival of patients getting surgery uh, by about 30%. So we targeted a hazard ratio of uh, 0.7. So they asked for six more months, and at that point, we added um, a, a few more events. We had 146. Uh, we started with 125 events, uh, which was half of the events we needed, and we got to 146 in that six-month window. And they looked at the probability that we would reach our primary endpoint and determined that it would be less than 0.1%. So with a, um, essentially the curves were so close together or felt to be uh, in, a, in a situation where we would not be able with further events uh, to achieve that hazard ratio and they um, uh, advised us to release the data. And then translating that to 
clinical applicability. Um, wh what would you say are, are the practice changing findings from the, from the study? Yeah, so we were surprised, as I think most people were, uh, that uh, in the original analysis that the patients randomized to surgery uh, did not do better than the patients randomized to chemotherapy. Um, and uh, and s a bit surprising, we also did not see any difference in progression-free survival, although the, the medians were slightly different uh, at that part of the curve. The, the overall hazard ratio for both of those objectives, uh, the primary one being overall survival, was not different. So obviously I can see how that could be quite unexpected and, and, and often difficult for, for the community of gynecologic oncologists to, to accept. Mm -hmm. um, and, and obviously the questions that do come up are, you know, what about if you um, have an R0 residual mm -hmm. in, in, in this setting, uh, uh, in this population? Or also, what about if a patient just has a single site of disease? I mean, it's, it's so tempting from the literature <laughs> that we knew that this patient would be an ideal candidate for surgery. What would, you, what would your response be to those arguments? Yeah, we, and of course, we looked at all those uh, in, the, in the analysis, and we reported that at the IGCS meeting uh, this past uh, uh, September in Kyoto. The, um, I think that the, um, the kind of the first message was that we had learned from the retrospective experience that patients who were taken to the OR and were left with any residual disease essentially did not get any benefit from the procedure. So it was only those patients that they could get to a complete gross resection. And to the, you know, to the credit of the desktop team, uh, who, whom we've worked with uh, very, uh, uh, over these many years to address this question, um, the, they were trying to identify criteria for which that that endpoint could be reached. So in other words, what were the factors preoperatively that would lead to an R0 or, as you mentioned, or a complete gross resection at the time of surgery? So that's, that seemed to be the only patient group that benefited. And what they came up with was a series of, uh, of an algorithm that, um, that based on three factors that would help to identify those patients. And they, they showed that they could pr reproduce that in the phase three setting as a, as a way to, to identify patients who would have an R0 resection more than two thirds of the time. In GOG213, we used a slightly different approach. We left it up to the individual investigator because we didn't have any, uh, we felt were reliable predictors back in 2003 when we, re when we wrote this trial. Uh, of, of, the, of a complete gross resection. And so we left up to the investigators to pick the patients in whom, you know, they could get a complete gross resection. And so not surprisingly, more than half of the patients on GOG213 essentially had one or one or two sites of disease and then, under, and then underwent the randomization. So we, um, uh, although, the, you know, we, we didn't randomize on the basis of those types of findings, we did look at those subgroups and we unfortunately were unable to find, even in the patient's with a single site of disease, including a single site of disease which is outside the abdominal cavity, like an inguinal node, uh, showed a difference in their overall survival. What I will say is that the curves, which were slightly separated but not statistically separated, showing um, actually an improvement for the chemotherapy arm over surgery, they basically became closer together, uh, but again, not showing any difference in, in overall survival. Now, for progression-free survival, we did see um, a slight improvement on uh, in patients with a single-sided disease, and that would kind of make sense if you think about it. If your only measurable disease is the one that you take out, you might expect that progression-free survival would be longer, right? It just takes longer for whatever new disease to show up as opposed to one that you didn't do anything with. So that was... Um, Interesting. I think the other thing that we showed that was interesting was that people will say, well, wait a minute, I have a patient who's three years out. 
you know, she's got to be super platen sensitive. I'm going to reoperate just like we did the first line and see if we can get this better outcome. So we looked at this in a couple different ways, but um, since the eligibility required a minimum of six months from the previous platinum to, to be even considered eligible for the trial, we looked at these in essentially quintiles, and we mapped out these quintiles out to the top one being after 45 months. So we started at six and got to 45 in quintiles. And we basically showed that certainly for surgery, the longer you're away from that chemotherapy, the better you did. So those hazard ratios come down but they also come down for chemotherapy. And so we could not find any quintile for which there was an improvement of surgery over chemotherapy uh, based on the platinum-free interval. And Rob, based on, on, on these studies, I, I presume these are applicable to high-grade serous carcinoma. A question that often comes up is, well, are, are these principles and findings also applicable to patients with recurrent platinum-sensitive low-grade ovarian cancer? Yeah, the proportion of patients, obviously, uh, by histology in, in the study was heavily weighted towards high-grade serous. Um, there were some high-grade endometrioids uh, and, and high-grade adenocarcinomas. There were very few low-grade um, carcinomas. And, and I think, you know, the biology that we, as we understand low-grade is quite different. And so I'd, I would, it would be hazardous to extrapolate these findings to all histologies. And I would say that one other factor that we don't know about, uh, which could be relevant, is the, is the BRCA status. So we know that approximately 20-25% 20, 20, of the patients would, be, uh, would carry a, a either germline or germline somatic mutation in BRCA. Um, and we would expect those to be equally balanced in the arms by randomization, but we don't know that for sure. So we don't know whether or not there is a particular um, subgroup based on genomics that would identify that. And so we're, that's one of the uh, objectives that we're trying to work on. Okay. And um, as a overall general practice question, is there any patient today in your practice or at MD Anderson that is a candidate for secondary cytoreduction. reduction? Well, I think that, you know, when you look back in the literature on the term secondary cytoreduction, reduction, you see it being used in lots of different ways. In fact, there's a GOG trial of an interval frontline study that calls that second surgery secondary cytoreduction. reduction. So I would, I would try to limit my comments to uh, secondary cytoreduction reduction with the intent of in trying to prove, improve outcome in platinum-sensitive patients. Right now, on the basis of GOG-213, we don't see an improvement in overall survival. Um, in this particular study, because of the predominant, uh, relatively heavy use of bevacizumab in over 80% of our patients, we think that the benefit, even on progression-free survival, may be diminished. So um, at this point, I, we couldn't find a subgroup of patients that the surgery seemed to benefit. But, you know, this is a, this is a dynamic field. And so as more and more strategies become available, uh, that better help us identify specific patients um, and the response to subsequent lines of therapy and the expansion of those therapies, I think, you know, we'll continue to want to revisit the question. And are there any um, ongoing studies, or do you think there's going to be any future studies exploring this same mm -hmm. question? So, um, as I mentioned before, the desktop three investigators, the AGO group, uh, is um, their study is also done. It's a little bit smaller than ours. They have 407 patients as opposed to our 485. But interestingly, they commented on their initial report that they were seeing a longer than expected um, uh, event 
time frame so that the events are happening at, at a lower rate than expected. And that's exactly what happened in, in, in GOG 213. So um, we have met with, the, uh, with their team and their statisticians to look at the databases between the two studies. And so uh, when Desktop 3 matures, um, which we expect probably in the next year or so, the, uh, we'll have the ability of actually combining the databases to look into the subgroups. So that'll give us nearly 1,000 patients to, uh, to look at uh, as to see whether or not there are some of these other subtle differences. Well, Rob, it's been absolutely a pleasure. And once again, congratulations on, uh, on this really remarkable achievement and this uh, really great study. Any uh, closing remarks you have for our groups and our audience? Well, you know, as I always say, you know, research cures cancer. I'll, I'll, uh, I, although I didn't make that term up, I, 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 do, I think it's important. <laughs> but when, it, when you talk about surgical trials, this is where it really makes a difference. There's so much bias um, that we have to overcome to be able to answer these really important questions. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.